What's up, Fish Sauce family? It's Elton. And Wilson. And we're back with a fresh episode of Fish Sauce. Join us on a journey into the minds of successful founders, operators, and investors. As we learn about their secret sauce, we hope you find yours too. Today, we have one of the most recognizable entrepreneurs and investor, Justin Kahn. Justin is the co-founder of live video platforms, Justin.tv and Twitch.tv, which was bought by Amazon for about a billion dollars. Huge. Justin also co-founded the legal startup Atrium, which recently raised $10 million in funding from 92 investors, one of the biggest party rounds we've ever seen. Justin is able to grow his platform and his companies by sharing his stories through live streaming platforms such as Justin TV. Justin.tv is just an example of how creative Justin can be. His ability to think outside the box is only one of the many examples that allow him to create hyper growth and viral companies. We got introduced to Justin through one of Justin's co-founders, Bebe Chui, who is part of the Female Founder Series on Fish Sauce. Thank you, Bebe, for the connect, and we're very grateful to be having this Fish Sauce family continue to grow and grow. What's Justin's secret sauce? Stay tuned to find out. You're the definition of a serial entrepreneur, and a very successful one, in fact. Can you share with us and our listeners how you first started the popular Justin TV, Twitch TV, and then moved on to founding Exec, which got acquired by Handy, and then finally starting the current startup, Atrium? My very first startup actually was it's called Kiko, before we actually launched Justin TV. This is about a year and a half before, and I started in college uh, when I was a senior at Yale. It was a calendar company, like kind of like Google Calendar before yeah. Google Calendar came out. We saw Gmail when we were seniors, and we thought someone should make something similar to this that's for, for a calendar. We thought that would be a natural thing that people would, would want, and it turns out they did. They just really wanted it with email, and they really wanted Google Calendar. And so our version, which was very similar, really didn't make a lot of sense because it didn't come packaged with the rest of the productivity software most people want mm-hmm. to get bundled together, right? We didn't have an email client. We kind of failed at that, and we ended up selling it after we raised money. The good thing was we raised money from Y Combinator. We started we joined the very first batch of YC companies with Reddit and uh, Looped, and became awesome. really good friends with those guys. And so, that first of all, how did you find out about YC so early? You were the first batch. How did you know about these new organizations? Yeah, so YC got out. Was our, the first batch? It was it was very unclear what it was. There was no history at the time. Paul had emailed a bunch of computer science departments to kick it off and ask if there were any students that had startups that wanted to join this summer program. We applied. He gave us an email back that said there were three kinds of startups, ones that had really great founders with great ideas, people who uh, didn't seem so good, and people who seemed okay, but their ideas were bad, and you are in the camp number three. He asked us if we would be interested in changing our idea. We said, sure, maybe. We took the train up to Boston because we were in New Haven at the time, and we did an interview. It was like a 40-minute interview at the time, and we thought we completely flubbed it. Most of the time was spent between my co-founder Emmett, who became my co-founder at Justin TV and Twitch, and is now CEO of Twitch. Well, Emmett arguing with Trevor Blackwell, one of the original YC partners, who is Paul's friend and one of his co-founders at ViaWeb, his startup. Both the two of them basically spent a significant amount of the interview arguing over whether JavaScript would become a real thing and whether a lot of applications would be written in the future in primarily <laughs> JavaScript. Nothing about the product. Yeah, well, it, I mean, I think yeah. we were vindicated at the end. Yeah. Unfortunately, our product ultimately did not work, but we did walk out of there with, with funding from YC, at which point we moved up to Boston and we started working on this full-time. 
And we worked on Kiko for about a year and a half, failed to get very much traction, and ended up selling it on eBay as a way to get some investment back for mm-hmm. our, our small angel round that we had raised after YC. Mm-hmm. Did an auction. The site was bought by Two Cows, the internet company up in Toronto. We ended up... Was that a thing? People sell their companies on eBay as an auction bid? It wasn't really a thing either before or after, but we made Just it Just being thing. innovative. <laughs> I know. I've actually never heard of that either. <laughs> For lack of better, a better thing to do, that was like our only option, only recourse at the time. We didn't know how yeah. companies were bought or sold or anything. <laughs> That's so funny. I sold like shoes on eBay. Yeah. You sold a company on eBay. I, yeah. It was sold for $258,000. That's crazy. So then we decided to do this other crazy idea, which was Justin TV. Uh, we called it Justin TV, and it wasn't. How'd really, you come up with the name? Yeah. We had to look long and hard for someone who was <laughs> stupid enough to put a, agree to put a camera on his head and film a 24 7 reality TV show. And unfortunately, after scouring all the available candidates, the only person who was dumb enough was me. <laughs> this would be an interesting, it was almost like a performance art experiment, but disguised as a startup. We said, well, this is going to be a new form of reality TV, and we're going to get a lot of people to uh-huh. look at it. And Paul was like, I really like you guys, so this is a weird idea, but I'll give you, you know, he gave a, a check for 50 grand to incubate it. And that's how we started. We actually had to end up it turns out, inventing a ton of technology to make it work. And so we started, um, we built, basically recruited two other co-founders, we built this streaming system, and then we launched it in 2007. The show itself didn't work out, but we ended up creating more of a platform for live video, kind of like YouTube for live video. Grew that site to be a top, maybe 100 website, maybe 150, I can't remember exactly where we landed. And over the next couple of years, we did a lot of software scaling, grew the team, eventually, growth slowed and we decided to pivot to a couple different ideas. The one that really worked was called Twitch and it was a platform for people to watch other people play video games. There was a lot of skepticism that that would work. Continued growing it, raised more money, total about $45 million uh, in the lifetime of the company. And then in 2014, Amazon bought the company. Tell me more about that um, part when you're pivoting and think about different ideas that this can become and live stream gaming seemed to be the one that you guys chose, right? What were those debates like and what were the, how did you address this opposition against the idea? Sure. So we had a really weird, pretty horribly managed company in the sense that there were four co-founders. One of us, my, my co-founder Michael, was technically the CEO, but we all like weighed in on every decision. And that's a terrible way to organize anything. I believe the best form of human organization is the benevolent dictatorship, and uh, at least the most efficient form. The only problem with that is that oftentimes they can become not benevolent. Mm-hmm. But when you have the benevolence aspect, it's like, it's great. Uh, unfortunately, we were more of like a, I don't even know if they have a word for something run by four people, right? It's like a, if And you guys all people, had each a, equal share in terms tr- of opinions? Yeah, basically. And so what happened was we couldn't agree on what to do. All we knew was that things were not working. So... When the growth slowed, we were making money at the time. You know, the company was um, was pretty decent revenue-wise. I think it was just shy of $10 million annually, and 25 people. The problem, though, was that we didn't know what would replace the growth. And so we thought of a bunch of ideas, and we couldn't agree. The four founders couldn't agree on which would work. The two main contenders for ideas were, one, working on mobile video, which in itself I think is actually a good idea, but building like a mobile video app. And then the second one was... Uh, working on the gaming streams, which were part of, you know, something that was organically happening on Justin TV. So because we couldn't agree, we decided to incubate it in three teams, we divide the company in three teams. 
and do you know those two ideas and then also have one third team working on Justin TV, which is like keeping the lights on because we were making revenue off of it. And we did that and then eventually spun social cam. We, what we said actually, which was really smart, I think, we said we give it six months and we set goals a priori, right? We said if, if it hits these goals in six months, we think this is a success. And we based those goals on what we thought our ultimate success needed to be. The good thing was after six months, the Twitch website, it wasn't called Twitch then, it was called Justin TV Gaming, but that the gaming section of the website was actually hitting all of its, blowing its, its metrics out of the water. The mobile video thing was not so much, and so we ended up spinning off the mobile video thing, which is called Social Cam, into a new company, which actually ended up selling to Autodesk for $60 million wow. the next year. So many exits. And then we, um, we continued on with Twitch. And Twitch, even though there was a lot of skepticism over the video, watching people play video games, the fact that it was growing uh, and hitting the milestones gave us confidence to do that. I mean, it, it's cool for the people on the team to be able to split up and essentially kind of just work on these stealth projects for six months. I mean, like, how, how many opportunities do people get to just do that? Yeah, right? I think it was pretty cool. I think From it, organizational design. I think it was cool. I think people yeah. had a lot of fun doing that. I mean, obviously, it's pretty fun to work in a small team against something that's working. And yeah. so I think we got very lucky in a lot of ways, and we were riding pretty big waves. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't say that. It was very strategic, what we were doing. Right. From a business perspective, it turned out pretty well um, in hindsight. But from a cultural perspective, how did it you know, change the company? I know they're working in different parts of different products in the company, but do people feel like they're still part of the same company or did it kind of change the culture? And It was good from a management perspective, I think. But from a cultural perspective, it wasn't very good because I feel like everyone thought that if their project didn't work out, they could just go on to the other project. As soon as things became more do or die for Social Camp, for example, when we said it's a different company, we moved it to a different office, yeah. that is when it really started working a lot better because I think that internally there was this feeling, oh, if well, if Social Camp doesn't work out, I can go work at this other thing. And they weren't allowed to. So they had they had to continue staying focused Yeah, we actually Camp split it into a new company and, and every, we recapitalized got- it so that those new people who went with it got more equity in it. Immediately, they figured out some hacks that started growing, and then... On the note of hacking things, every so often we find companies like PayPal that's really um, growth-hacked their way you know, via eBay platform, or we see Dropbox doing so through you know, the referral of giving free storage if you refer to your friends. And we see that Twitch, and they're able to growth hack. Can you share a little more about like, you know, some of these growth hacking methods, whether it's Twitch or even Atrium you know, through fundraising? What are some growth hacking ways that you've been able to accomplish in the past or now? In ju- the early Justin TV days, things grew because I think things on the Internet were more like people shared more th- cool stuff on the internet well I'm mean, now there's actually I guess the, the the real answer is there was less competition for like cool stuff there's less there's less media being created on the internet and so I think that was it, we did the same things as YouTube right like it's shareable embeddable you know those were that was a main channel with the social cam product once it was spun off there was a lot of hacking the Facebook open graph in terms of making it you know all the actions appear on open graph and that cause a tremendous amount of usage. I mean, the key with growth hacking is that like nothing ever works for an extended period of time, and you have to figure it out. You have to figure out when there's like less focus on the channel, and then really crush the channel, and then it's not probably going to work again in two years. Facebook has been a source of tremendous amounts of these new channels because they're always changing their platform. Later on with Twitch, I would say that it was still those embeds, but it was primarily getting. I wouldn't call it a hack, actually. It was really lining incentives between the broadcasters and ourselves. When we started compensating broadcasters, it really 
made a difference because they've started viewing Twitch as their livelihood, their primary source of income. And then, then they were very incentivized to share it in all their places, like whether it's YouTube or Twitter or Facebook, any social media presence they had, they were sharing their, their Twitch profile. And so I think that's fundamentally what worked. It wasn't really one channel. It was really aligning the incentives with some other party who's incentivized to share uh, your content. And I mean, it's the same thing that many different people have used from YouTube to Kickstarter to mm-hmm. uh, even eBay or Amazon, right? And so that was one of the key lessons from Twitch. With Atrium, you know, and then it's, the jury's still out. Atrium is our new startup. It's a, it's a technology-focused law firm for startups trying to make it, things easy, legal services easy, fast, and with upfront pricing for startups. And so one thing we did with our technology company that supports Atrium, the, the law firm, we raised money from over 90 investors in Silicon Valley because we thought being close to these investor networks would be a good way to generate clients for Atrium LLP. Yeah. That's brilliant, just to get in touch with that kind of web of connections. You've had a lot of success in a lot of different verticals in terms of the companies that you've started, right? You go from essentially the internet to legal to entertainment, media, Q&A, etc. Do you find that starting a company um, requires someone to be a subject matter expert in that industry, or is it more about the fundamental aspects of being an entrepreneur and building companies? I think there's different ways to do it. I don't think, I don't think there's any one right way. And what convinced me of that actually was Beats, because when I saw Beats, I thought, along with everyone in Silicon Valley, how can two celebrities make a, a headphone, a technology company or a headphones company? And what did I know? I mean, clearly they did it, right? They like outsourced all their tech in the beginning and eventually brought it in-house. You know, they were a part, it was a partnership with a joint venture with Monster, right, mm-hmm. like in the beginning. And I thought that would never work, but it turns out, there's many ways to start a, start a company. I think there's lots of companies that are started by subject matter experts that are really excellent companies and could not be started by someone who is not a subject matter expert because that deep you know, knowledge, oftentimes technical knowledge, is, is the core innovation. And then I think there are companies, thankfully, that are started by non-subject matter experts like myself and the technical knowledge or technical innovation is, is kind of learned and uh, created within the company afterwards. I think there's advantages to both. You know, one of the good things about my approach is I take a beginner's mind to many different problems, and so you're rethinking through the entire stack from first principles and, and really figuring out does the way that it exists currently make sense to actually do. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, I mean, oftentimes the answer is yes, actually, mm-hmm. but sometimes the answer is no, and those no's become the your core differentiator over time. Are there specific industries that require like someone that's already in the industry versus not, whether it's legal, real estate, or other type of industries? I wouldn't say it's so much specific industries. I mean, when I was at Y Combinator, we funded a nuclear energy startup called Helion, for example, and the you know innovation and fusion that uh, the, the guys were working on came from their expertise as you know, professors and grad students mm-hmm. in nuclear energy. And so could I have just gone and started that startup? I don't know. Probably not, right? Or I would have had to go find some guys like that who could have actually done the technical work. And there's many examples of that. Whatever company it is, whether it's a nuclear fusion company or a real estate company or a, a legal services company or, or a video company, there's a role for people who are not the subject matter experts. Most of what you do in the company, some of what you do in the company is like working under that, on that subject matter, but a lot of it is similar throughout companies, right? It's how to hire the right team. It's how to pitch a narrative that 
enables you to raise money or recruit people or get PR or sell customers or whatever it is. What would you say is your role generally in these companies? I think I am the world's greatest hype man. (laughs) (laughs) That's going to be the title of the podcast. I think I'm, I'm a good catalyzer of teams. I think I'm really good at bringing a team together and getting them excited about accomplishing a goal. Yeah. And that's my number one skill How do you set. do that? I, I mean, because, like, for me, my team here is about 160 people, and that's kind of, like, what I'm thinking about every single day. Like, how do you build culture at intimacy? And I would say I need to be a hype man consistently as well and yeah. kind of trying out different th- things. I think know? it starts with your narrative. You have to think about what's the narrative and what's your right to exist uh, as a company. Mm-hmm. That's one thing I think a lot about. And... You know, if you work at a big company, you de facto have a right to exist, right? If you work at GM, GM has a lot of jobs. It's kind of like either creating value, obviously, they create cars. Of course, it's like it's a company. There's momentum, right? But as a new a founder of a new startup or a new division in a startup or a new product internally, it doesn't, you know, at a big company, there's no necessarily entrenched or intrinsic momentum in what you're doing. And you don't necessarily have a right to exist, right? Why should this be a product? Why should this team exist? What's its contribution to society or its customers? And I think if you want to recruit a team, if you want to build that company, build that product before it exists, you have to create a narrative that convinces people, hey, this should exist. I believe in it. I believe that I'm creating something that's valuable. You know, it doesn't have to change the world, but it does, people do want to believe that their work actually contributes to something. And you need to, if you want talented people who have lots of options, you need to convince them that you're working on something important. And I think that narrative is incredibly powerful because ultimately, you know, what I've learned as a, as a CEO, the other, my other skill set is that I think I'm very good at delegation and I'm very good at focus on very few things. And no matter what you're doing, no matter who you are, you're not going to be able to do everything yourself. So if you think that in a company, let's say there's five things to do. Let's say it's like develop the product, engineering, marketing, sales, and customer accounts or operations. Mm-hmm. Those five things, right? Let's say you're the CEO. Uh, you're the CEO of a company, and, and you maybe you have some co-founders, maybe you have some other people, and you're going to assign one thing to every each of those those people, right? What's the difference between you doing one of those five and you doing zero of those five? You still have to rely on either four or five other people who are talented to execute. Otherwise, mm-hmm. it's not going to work, right? So to me. It's not about what your line worker output is, right? Like whether I'm doing the sales or not or, or someone else is doing it or I'm doing the engineering or someone else is doing it. It's much more about how do I create a functional team that can do execute all of those things excellently. That's much more important, right? By your recruiting skills and your narrative skills are going to have five times the impact of your individual line worker skills if all of those departments are equal, yeah. right? And so to me, it's not important to – like your individual ability to contribute as a line worker – or as a manager of a specific function is actually much less important as, as the CEO to your individual ability to build a team and manage that team uh, against a narrative. Right? I mean, taking a step back and kind of zooming out and making sure you're not deeply involved in certain things is actually a hard thing as a up-and-coming leader, manager, et cetera. I think that takes a lot of skill. Well, I think it also takes experience. When yeah. I was 10 years ago when I was starting out, I wanted to be involved in everything. I was more of a micromanager. I really wanted to. I thought I had great opinions on things and I wanted to be involved. Now I realize my number one thing I can do 
to aid the execution of a company is to hire people who are smarter than I am, better than I am, more talented than I am, and help them focus. I have a question that's slightly more personal. Every founder has to face a fundamental tension or question, whether they want to be rich or they want to be royal. So rich meaning the fact that you can create a really big business by taking investor capital, um, growing very fast, but then you lose a little ownership over time, right? Or you can sort of like be that royalty where you want to just take, keep control, you and your current management team keep control, grow slower at a more moderate rate, right? So do you fall on one of those, whether it's like rich or royal, kind of like, do you want to mind, you know, sharing a little bit, like, do you fall on one of those sides? Well, I, I think it's a little bit of a false dichotomy. Hmm. The way you are royal, I guess, is, is that you raise money at increasing orders of magnitude. And when that, like, when you don't have a pitch anymore that lets you get to the next order of magnitude because you have, you know, don't have enough evidence or whatever, that's when you, like, start getting heavily diluted, right? But I guess if I had to choose, I, I'm going for personal growth rather than making the most money. I don't know. I haven't done an analysis or anything, but I think that it, you would probably make the most money by having retaining a lot of a moderate size company, like 100% of a like hundreds of multi hundreds of millions of dollar company, or you know like Spanx, right? Like the Spanx founder like owns like 100% of that, and it's, you know, estimated to be worth a billion dollars, but it takes a long time. And I guess I, what I want to do is shorten the time to becoming a, a big company because I feel like that's when I. That's where my area to learn is. I think there's a long way to go for me to managing like a real, the thing I haven't done yet, right, is like managing a real, like large, lasting Silicon Valley company of, that employs thousands of people and actually has a product that does good in the world that people actually use a lot and rely on. We sold Twitch pretty early, actually, in the life cycle of the company. It was eight years into the company, actually, but it was taking off and, and flecting and now it's 1200 people you know we were talking earlier they're yeah. b- building their own building so that's pretty cool but I you know really wasn't part of that ride and I'd like the chance to do it and so that's my goal with Atrium is to build something that is uh, pretty big and pretty impactful and I want to do it quickly because you know you know time's the one thing you can't get more of I think that incremental wealth does not really make that much of a difference in your life uh, there's only so much you can spend. So we're going to switch gears and dive a little bit into your upbringing and the community you grew up in. Can you share with us kind of the community you grew up in, what your childhood was, was like, and essentially who are those people around you who made you who you are today? Grew up in Seattle, Capitol Hill, in the neighborhood of Seattle. Pretty middle class uh, neighborhood. It's pretty Great nice brunch places, yeah. from what I hear. Now, now it's uh, <laughs> gentrified a lot. Grew up near Broadway Street, and it was pretty, um, I guess, Broadway Avenue probably. Pretty pretty nice place to grow up, and my two parents, my mom immigrated here from Malaysia when she was 17, she's Chinese ethnically, and my dad grew up in Seattle, he was born in Seattle, my grandma on my dad's side was born in Seattle, or Ellensburg, Washington, so my family has been around there for a while. Was there like a cultural difference in um, uh, the way their upbringing would um, shape you, because like they don't have the same background? Yeah, so I, I think my dad was a pretty, I mean, he's very American, you know, like in the sense that he doesn't really speak Chinese. He's kind of, you know, he had a pretty, like a straightforward path, you know, he was like, worked at Safeway when he was a teenager and he got drafted and went to the Vietnam War, you know, earned a Purple Heart and Bronze Star for during, oh. in Vietnam and wow. came back and went to college. 
uh, under the GI Bill and became a, effectively an accountant, like a financial administrator, and worked at various universities and then like worked at um, the University of Washington for a long time. So I mean, a pretty you know normal American like upbringing, I guess. I think it was pretty pretty typical. My mom was more had like uh, immigrant mentality, you know, came over here with nine brothers and sisters and, uh, you know, put herself uh, through college and became a computer science major programmer at um, Digital. Mm-hmm. My mom's very interested in many different things. She's always interested in something new. She was a programmer and then she uh, was in real estate as a mortgage broker and real estate agent and also, you know, real estate investor. And then more recently, she became a marriage and family therapist uh, about, you know, maybe close to 10 years ago. And so uh, my mom's very curious about new industries and professions. And you can see some of that reflected in the fact that I like starting, you know, many companies in different different industries. And my mom's very interested in people. And I think I'm, you know, pretty similar. Yeah, did, did any of those, um, you know, upbringing stories or community actually instill the values that you have today? And are those kind of translated over to the company that you've, you've built in the past and currently building? Yeah, so, you know, my mom, my parents, actually, both of them were always work really hard. So I definitely had that. I remember saying when I, when I was a kid, you know, my mom was always fixing up houses and she'd be like, oh, you have to, you know, help us paint the side of this house. Or I remember jackhammering concrete out of, like, the sidewalk so we could pour new concrete and, like, one, you know, in a path up to a rental house that mm-hmm. she bought. And I was like, man, I really want to have a 9-to-5 job when I <laughs> uh, grow up. She was just like, that's not what she chose. And so, you know, I understand now, obviously, being a founder is not a 9-to-5 job. And uh, especially in the era of like iPhones and you know having access to your email, there's no nine to five in the world of of startups. If not, if you want to win, and so I think a lot of that work ethic came from seeing my parents early on. I mean, I, I think there's like a probably a common theme of the the work ethic. I my, one of my very first jobs was working at this hospital where I was stockroom attendant two. Stockroom attendant two is like lower than stockroom attendant one, I think, and and so stockroom attendant two like had to go and just, the job was like basically running random stuff, supplies up to like various clinics in the hospital, you know, like bedpans and like, you know, catheters and stuff like that. And I mean, I had to get up at this, the shift started at 6 a.m. So I'd get up at, you know, 4.45 or whatever to, to go do this. And, you know, it's just a reminder of like, you got to do it. You got to show up and do it, even though it's sometimes things suck. But that was that was pretty good. And another actually good um, inflection point or like memory that I, I remember having uh, from early on is uh, I had this mentor who was he's a, actually a partner at a law firm that he, he started. Uh, his name was Carl Forsberg in, in Seattle, and he at one point he so he taught our mock trial coached our mock trial team at, in high school that I was part of, and he said at one point I remember I was joking around. Well, like I was just making cracking jokes or something instead of what we were trying to practice our pitch or, or whatever our, our you know mock trials like a yeah. do like an argument. It's so actually it's, probably great training for being a hype man. Yeah, like mock trial. Yeah. And so, <laughs> so we were practicing, and he was just like, "Why?" Like I was said some something facetious, and he was just like, "Are you here to?" I don't think he said it this way, but it was basically like, "Are you here to fuck around, or are you gonna like here to work?" And I was like, "Oh." I'm here to I'm here to do better. I want to do I want to I want to work. And so I mean, he really brought a serious. Even though he was a great guy, he's a funny guy actually, and like a really caring guy. 
he, he was just like, you know, there's time to there's time to be serious. That kind of stuck with me for a long time. Yeah. I'm actually curious about kind of the nine to five connotation because in Silicon Valley, it has a pretty bad connotation, right? That's actually the positive thing that actually draws people to join the Valley or to come out West because they can work and build fast and get things done and see results at a much faster expedited rate than maybe a traditional company. What are your thoughts around that? Because I, I know I, I work for a really passion-driven company and I'm really excited about it and I work pretty much 24-7. I love it. I know the people on my team love it as well, but it's not for everyone, right? Yeah, I definitely don't think it's it's for everyone. I think that, well, first of all, I think the idea of you know, in Silicon Valley, you can't be nine to five is like completely actually fake. And I think it's very different, like in different companies and also in different parts of different companies. But many people at Google are just are there and, and having a great time. I was just there. They left at 3 p.m. actually. Yeah, working like 11 to 3, right? <laughs> My friend was telling me the story about his coworker at Google who didn't show up. He was trying doing an experiment and he stopped going to work for two weeks. And then he only started coming again because he felt guilty. <laughs> I don't think everybody at Google or I mean, sorry, in Silicon Valley is working, you know, this like extreme crazy hours. The real thing is like in certain companies, especially startups, when you're starting in a certain times when you're founding a startup or you're a part of an early stage startup team, there's no one there's no one there to save you. You know, if you're if you're part of a big company and your division, your product doesn't work, you can go work at some other part of the company and they're probably gonna transfer you and place you and it's fine. But it goes back to you know like that that right to exist like in, in a startup when you if you don't figure it out there's no one who will save you so it's not really about the hours it's more about the stress of like having no backup no default thing for what happens if you don't figure it out and i think that leads you to spend all your time thinking and working on it whether you like it or not so it's not really for everyone i don't think and i think that if you can be happy working a normal job then more power to you I don't think that's anything like negative actually Mm -hmm. I just think that for some people they want something more that's like more engaging more demanding it's like marathon runners right it's actually bad for you to be a marathon runner like at a certain point that like cardio benefits are like diminished Mm -hmm. and it's bad for your knees you're better off like exercise biking you know but why do people want to run a marathon? They want to run a marathon to challenge themselves, to like prove something to themselves because they enjoy it, because they get something out of it. And I think startups are kind of the same way. It's like mm-hmm. you you want to do it because you, not because it's like shitty to run to work at a nine to five, it's because you want to get something out of it for yourself. There's some people that want to do startups for the right reason, for the right passion, for the right um, you know thing that drives them. Then there's some other people um, in another bucket that do it because there's a social pressure to do so in Silicon Valley. What do you say to a lot of those people where they're you know they're they're shoulder to shoulder with a friend that's like doing a startup and they're thinking about you know should they do a startup and they feel like you know you know in another city maybe they do feel f- fulfilled with a nine to five, but then. When they're next to a friend that's doing a startup here, they actually feel maybe less fulfilled because they feel like they um, need to, you know, also show that they're very ambitious and they can make an impact in the world. What do you say to people like that? Well, I think most of those people end up failing. I do think it's not black and white why people start startups. I know that I love starting startups because I love new working on new things and learning about new ideas, and because I I love seeing those ideas come to life, and I like the the access that you get while starting startups, and kind of being the you know, center and main driving force behind this, like, you know, a movement. I think that's pretty cool. I 
do think there's lots of times I would have quit if I wasn't working with co-founders who were able to inspire me in the times when I didn't feel very inspired. Does that mean like I'm not a good founder? I don't think so. So there's many different motivations, but I do think that there's no, you know, you probably shouldn't just start a startup just because you think there's social pressure to do so. Because when it comes down to it, there's going to be lots of times when you're like, why am I doing this? I'd rather be doing anything else. And if you don't really believe in what you're doing, you're going to you're going to just attrition out. We talked about your parents a little bit earlier and how uh, they're, they're pretty different in sort of upbringing and, and, and perspective. But how do they view what you're doing now, what you've done in the past and what you're working on now? They're technology companies. Do they understand first and foremost what companies you've actually created? And are they proud of what you've done so far? Are my parents proud that I started a billion-dollar company? Yeah, they're pretty proud. <laughs> they're pretty proud. Yeah, my parents, I mean, let's just say that. I think they think it's pretty awesome. I, I think they don't really understand... And I think it's true of most people. Like, people don't understand, actually, some of the market forces and network effects of, like, the companies that are created in Silicon Valley and, like, how they can grow so quickly. I, I'm not going to kid myself. I'm, like, the advantage of being in the right place at the right time in a, in a lot of ways. I'm, like, a pretty smart guy. I'm, like, a pretty decent web developer. And I think I was able to recruit a great team and work hard. But we're riding a massive wave, which is that this massive transition of media and, and spend to the internet, right? I didn't invent the internet. This shit invent, was in, invented a long time before I got here, and there was a huge amount of infrastructure that went into like making it available to everybody and you know, internet infrastructure that made it possible for these companies to, to get started. And so we're riding a massive wave, and I think I'm like in a lot of ways the beneficiary of that. So I think a lot of people from the outside, you know, my parents and maybe others, look in and say and see this as like, wow, it's crazy that they create that much wealth. But you know, there's a lot of like market forces that go into that. Yeah. So seemingly, it seems like things have always been pretty good, like being in the right place in the right time, and you've had a lot of momentum into starting new companies and companies exiting and getting acquired, etc. What was a particular moment you remembered where you really wanted to pivot, or an experience where you wanted to? redo and do over. Sure, there's like, I mean, lots of them. There were tons yeah. and tons of low points. And I think that when people, you know, do podcasts like this or read the tech crunches or whatever, you see all the like highlights, right? But actually mostly it's low lights or, you know, medium lights. But I think like it's, it's a roller coaster and like no matter what like degree you're playing at, there's always going to be natural variance of ups and downs. And so there's lots of, there's consistent downs throughout my entire you know, work history. Some of them, I started this company, Exec, that you guys talked about. We didn't talk about very much uh, earlier, but I basically uh, turned into a home services company, home cleaning, and that was a horrible company to run. I was, like, incredibly stressed all the time. It was not viral. There's The margins of that business are terrible, there were, and there's, like, no barrier to competition. Just putting it online doesn't make it an internet company, and so I was kicking myself the whole time for starting that company. I should have pivoted to something else. You know? What kind of inspired you to start that company? It was so different from... Well, I started a company that was more like TaskRabbit at first. Okay. This was one of the things that people were doing, and so I was like, okay, we'll just focus on this thing. I should have focused on, you know, like grocery delivery instead, which is another thing people were doing or something like that. But basically, uh, it did not work, and we ended up uh, selling it to Handy. It might be a fine outcome, but um, but it did not meet our expectations. That was one time. I mean, I spent a lot of years, not a lot of years, but one year, like, kicking myself and, and really thinking about what I like doing and what I'm good at doing, and there's always uh, there's always things that could be done better. And, you know, you just kind of have to keep a level head and say, okay, I'm going to, like, try to do these better. But it's not the end of the world if this thing isn't executed at 100%. Mm-hmm. Because nothing is ever perfect. Yeah. How do you stay balanced mentally? How do you stay balanced mentally? Well, I think you need to have a life outside of uh, your startup. You know, I think 
luckily I, I have that. I got married last year. I'm, Congrats. <laughs> thank you. I have a healthy group of family and, and friends who I you know, see regularly, and, and there's just a lot of stuff that I got going on outside of, outside of startups. I'm raising pigs. I'm a pig farmer. I heard that. You know, I got I got stuff to do outside of um, <laughs> very interesting stories. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. We talk about a lot about the founder's journey, um, and the founder's journey is not just about you. It's actually about your wife, your family, people that are with you. It's about bringing um, your loved ones with you and them being committed to what you're doing too. How have you either communicate that to like your wife or family? Like, this is a journey I'm going to take, and are, how do you balance the stresses that comes with it? I think it'd be harder if I had had kids. You know, I uh, with. My wife, you know, it is a difference. Right before this, I was starting at YC. I was basically a VC. That's the easiest job on earth, in my opinion, although every investor will probably tell you otherwise. I had a lot of time. Last year, we went all, all over the world. We went to China, went to Abu Dhabi, we went to Europe, we just traveling around, having a great time. And I was contributing to society in that I felt like I was contributing to all these YC companies and helping them out. That was great, you know, in a lot of ways, but it wasn't very fulfilling to me. I felt like I needed more of a, you know, tighter feedback loop on my actions, right? Investing, you like invest in something and then seven years later, it's like, good job. Or no, at that point, do you really care? And so with a startup, it's like, if you do something, you see the results immediately, or at least in a week or maybe a month. And so that's what I felt like I needed. I feel like my wife and I particularly, she has a pretty healthy perspective on things, has her own life and things that she's doing. And so uh, there's like a good balance there. I think it would be harder to do it when you had had kids, uh, especially, and not because of the hours so much as like the just your mental engagement. I mean, with regards to my larger community, I do feel like my close friends, we all like kind of came up together and support each other. And so it's pretty nice to be able to say, oh, you know, like, we made it, and then a lot of our friends are just doing good things. You know, they're, they're CEOs, they're founders, they're being successful. And the thing that I'm most proud of in my life, actually, more than any of these companies, is that there's a lot of people out there who I look at, I mentored, I helped out, or friends of mine who came and joined Justin TV pretty early on, or Twitch, or any of my companies. And I think those people are out there, and they're like, thank God for Justin Khan. And, you know, I, I feel like I brought a lot of people with us to, to be successful. I mean, the spirit, thanks. Thanks again for being on Fish Sauce. Yeah, really appreciate it, for sure. So moving on to our last question that we ask for Fish Sauce, what is your secret sauce, both literally and figuratively? So from the literal sense, it's like, what is the sauce that you like to eat the most? And then from the figurative standpoint, I know you mentioned Hype Man before, but what is the secret sauce that makes you so unique and special? Literal sauce? I mean, I don't, I don't know. I'm mostly like, I like to go with the preferred condiments that people eat. I mean, I guess ketchup. I'm like a big ketchup eater. It's yeah, not yeah, right. good for yeah. So in terms of my secret sauce, I think I have a couple things going for me. I have a really good ability to focus on what I think is the most important issue or issues. I think I am able to inspire people and to join something that seems like a crazy idea. Justin TV was a crazy idea, you know, us making a re- our own reality TV show. We got talented people to come out and join us to do that. And then Twitch was also, uh, you know, pretty crazy. And, you know, now by, by contrast, I think some of these other startups are not, not nearly as crazy at all. You know, Atrium's, Atrium's not crazy by comparison. So I feel like I've, I've done a pretty good job at, at recruiting. What's the secret sauce in recruiting the best team out there? For me, I think it's talking to a lot of people, seeing what's out there. And I think it's being very passionate about what you're doing and being very passionate about 
your narrative and being able to explain a powerful, like have being, having it and explaining a powerful, concise narrative for why you're going to win. So we've talked about sort of the storytelling and the hype man aspect of it. Is this trait something that people can learn or is this kind of yeah, a trait absolutely. that you've absolutely. been born with? I think that it's something you can totally learn. Uh, I think I'm a shy extrovert by nature. I love meeting people, but I wasn't like very, it was always, I was always nervous around new people, for example. Obviously I've you know interviewed hundreds of times. I've hired hundreds of people. I've had like thousands probably of initial meetings with people just explaining what I do. So I'm like very practiced now and, and very self-confident in that way. But it's a learned, learned experience. So I wouldn't, you know, I definitely wouldn't, this is coming from a kid who like I had to do a report when I was like, 10 maybe and I was like I literally in front of the class presenting it I had this report like covering my face <laughs> scared of like, talking to in front of, in front yeah. of an audience and so you know anything if I can get over that anyone can get over whatever their problem is is there anything in life that gets you nervous or gets you scared now I think that actually I do have a blind spot interestingly enough at about talking to an audience of 15 to 20 people I can talk to a bigger audience pretty easily and I talk, talk to a small number of people pretty easily, but like this, this like certain size of group where you don't know who to focus on or talk to, that's actually the uh, most nerve-wracking. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Fish Sauce. If you like what you heard, follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and sign up for our newsletter for the latest updates and special surprises. Also, treat yourself and a friend to a Fish Sauce t-shirt from our swag store, fishsaucepodcast.com. We can't wait to see you rocking on the streets. If our mission resonates with you, please leave a review on iTunes. And don't forget to share with your friends so we can welcome them into our Fish Sauce family. And lastly, big shout out to our awesome editor, Christian Edwards, for making us sound better than we actually are in each episode of Fish Sauce. What's, What's your secret, secret sauce? sauce?